Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you on a very cold winter day here in the mountains of Utah. My guest this week is author Piper J. Drake. Piper is a prolific romance author who puts the saucy into all of our favorite SFF subgenres. She's written a pair of suspense series in True Heroes and Safeguard, the science fiction Triton Experiment series, the Paranormal London Shifters series, and many standalone novels and short stories. She has a new contemporary fantasy series, Mythwoven, coming in April 2023 with the first book, Wings Once Cursed and Bound. Piper is also the co-host of the 20-Minute Delay podcast with Gail Carriger. Piper and I spend way too much time talking about food and tea before moving on to the tropes of the romance genre and the way she's used them in her own writing. We also chat about Piper's childhood love of science fiction and fantasy, the origin of her pseudonyms, and the challenges presented by moving between genres. Enjoy my conversation with Piper Drake. Oh man, so we we were starting to chat right before I hit record. Because we cannot be controlled. Right? <laughs> About how we... Uh, we saw each other at Dragonsteel Con just a few or eight weeks ago, but we didn't actually get to hang out at all, which is really a pity. Yeah, it was sad. It was sad. It's not for lack of trying. You did invite us to tapas, but other people in, in the group that I was with wanted burgers. That happened. Right. The irony of that was that Dan was trying to get me to come to do burgers with you guys, and I was really feeling the tapas place, and then I got a burger at the tapas place. <laughs> Really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love tapas. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely love tapas, but I also was really interested in this burger because, you know, Salt Lake City, Utah, very, very famous for this burger. And it sounded really appealing to me with this whole like, okay, friends, if you don't know what burger place, what what was it called again? Crown Burger or something? Was that it? I don't think I've ever been to it. So I don't have an opinion to share. Okay. So supposedly it is, we'll have to ask Dan Wells again what the name of this place is, but it is a burger chain that is specific to Salt Lake City or at least for to Utah. Yeah. And in particular, their classic burger has pastrami on it and a special sauce. Huh. Was it pastrami or was it I thought it was pastrami. Yeah, yeah. But either way, it was one of those um cure like one of those really, really lovely flavored meats. And I'm from the East Coast. I'm from I'm a Jersey girl. I love me some glorious like pastrami or corned beef sliced on rye with a little bit of sauerkraut and some Russian dressing. Yeah. Like give me all of those flavors right away. And so hearing that there was a burger that existed in Utah that, that let those flavors dance. I was very curious. And he also mentioned something about a fry sauce, which wasn't as interesting to me, but the burger had me. Well, how was it? 
it was good. It was a very cold walk to get there. Yeah. Because it just happened to be quite cold out that night. And we walked maybe three, four blocks. It wasn't terrible, but I'm a very slow walker, which means we were exposed to the cold longer than necessary because I'm a slow walker. The atmosphere of the place was nicer than, you know, your your McDonald's or your Burger King or your Wendy's. It was more on a level with what I grew up with and thinking of as like Red Robin or TGI Fridays or uh, Friendly's. Friendly's comes to mind for me being a South Jersey girl. Yeah. You know, the decor was nice. It had like some knights in shining armor up on the walls. There was a fireplace. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of nice on a cold night. Right? Like crackling fireplace. Very nice for a burger place. Uh, and the burger itself was very good. It was, you know, a juicy burger. I'm a bougie burger girl, though. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I have gone one of my favorite burgers ever was actually in Cambridge, Massachusetts, all the way at the end of Mass Ave, away from all of the usual restaurants. Like Mass Ave in Cambridge has a delightful amount of restaurants that cater to like a lot of the corporate buildings that are in the area and the student populace as well uh, for, you know, the various Ivy Leagues that are like right there. Yeah. Uh, but this burger place had a lamb burger Ooh. that they would serve to you so beautifully seared on the outside and so gloriously rare on the inside that it was it was like meltingly tender and they would put a little divot in the burger so that they could seat a tiny little quail egg oh my gosh in the divot and then they also would serve it with this amazing olive tapenade ah that was my favorite burger ever yeah that that sounds right like so you can tell i like the odd flavors yeah yeah (laughs) Ooh. This is me and, and my love of food is why I, I work so much food in my characterization. <laughs> I, I I do love food as well. Food is like one of those things. I definitely like I feel like as I get older and I'm trying to like I'm trying to address my like physical health better. I found that food has mm-hmm. become intrinsically like a guilt thing for me. And I'm really not liking that. change. Oh, 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 oh. See, one of the things I think I really appreciated, I had a heart attack in February of 2021, which, you know, you and I in hearts, we seem to have a thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, I work, I immediately connected with a nutritionist because uh, heart attack, right? You start to worry about what is the state of the rest of your body. And uh, fortunately for me, we did all of the scans and stuff and I had no buildup in my arteries. My heart attack source was not from cholesterol or cholesterol buildup or blockages in my arteries. Um, However, wanted to get ahead of it just in case uh, and, and could get my blood pressure under control. So I started working with a nutritionist and she was fantastic in the fact that she said, you know, don't don't guilt yourself for the food you like. Don't at all. She's like, let's, let's work on that psychologically. You have a therapist too. Like, don't guilt yourself. Cause I have over the years, a lot of trauma associated with food because of the pressures of being Asian diaspora and my parents having this visualization of what a Thai girl should look like. And it's not their fault, right? Like they grew up in Thailand, but I growing up here and the wonders of genetics, in addition to the wonders of food grew up with a much heavier bone structure and a much heavier musculature. And so I was much larger. I was taller. I was muscle built more than your average Thai girl was. So they were constantly putting me on drop diets when I was in high school because they didn't want me to be unhealthy. 
right? And in the 80s, the drop diets were terrible. They were like iceberg lettuce all week with like half a grapefruit and maybe a scoop of peanut butter. Oh, gosh. You know, so it was, I have trauma associated. Like if you wave a leafy green salad around me, I may be physically ill, right? Um, and and so like there's all of this complicated high school stuff going on with my trauma and me and food. And then we get to this heart attack situation and I'm working with a nutritionist and I was like, no salad. Like, I'm sorry. I know that my health is on the line here, but we're not doing salad. Yeah. Right. I'm just going to embrace that. And and she was like, no, it's fine. And the other challenge that she took on was the fact that I eat like 75% Asian foods, mm-hmm. which she had no experience with. Most nutritionists will like have tried and true kind of food suggestions for you. And m- almost all of them are very US based westernized food choices, you know, so we had to work together on what I liked. And what she decided to do is she said, eat what you like, because you're really sensitive to your body's cravings. Take pictures of everything you eat. And I will have a conversation with you every week about the content of that. And after every photo, she'd send up back and she's like, oh, that's awesome. How did that taste? Could you maybe throw a, a handful of cooked vegetables in with that? Right? Or like, that's awesome. That tasted really good. What about it did you like? Okay, could you add a little bit more protein, whether that's chicken or whether that's tofu, yeah. like some additional protein to that meal? Like, so she would start to tip into the meals that were my go to comfort foods and make tweaked suggestions to add more protein or add more vegetables to better balance out the macros so that it was my food choices. I wasn't giving anything up but she was helping me better balance them. Well, that's good. I, well, I'm glad you're, you're working with somebody on that. Cause I, I, I definitely, I, I definitely struggle with that kind of thing. Like I just in terms of man, like, like, cause I just like food is like, like that's one of the great pleasures of life. Right. Yes. And I used to love seeing all of your photos and stuff. Like you, you do food good. I well, I well, my smoker broke a couple of months ago. Oh no. And then right around the time I had my heart problem. And so I was like, I'm going to get a smoker after I deal with the medical bills. Fair, fair. Absolutely fair. Um, but yeah, no, I love food and I love, I love, I love red meats, which is really not great for you in quantity. Um, but you know, I, Oh yeah. I had one person approach me and was like, I would like you to eliminate 90% animal based protein from your diet. And I was like, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'd rather, I'd, I'd rather pay the consequences. R- right. That's like, not going to happen. <laughs> There are certain lines you kind of have to draw. Like, like I'm very much one of those people that I I feel like I feel like it, it, it'd be way more ethical if we had more kind of plant based diets and if we had more if uh, if but like like if they can give me a meat that is plant based that I can't tell I will totally switch to that. But until that day, I just I love meat so much. <laughs> I definitely took a different approach in the fact that like I have adjusted how much red meat I intake. For me, I follow my cravings a lot more, right? So I only crave red meat on a very, very occasional basis. Like when Dan was talking about this unusual burger, right? Like then I'm like, oh yeah, that that sounds great. Like I'm not going to sit there and deny myself and be like, no, don't eat that red meat. Instead, and, and for holidays, like one of my Christmas, my favorite Christmas meals to make is leg of lamb definitely red meat going all the way. Um, But I tend on a day-to-day basis to really gravitate towards chicken and fish 
a lot of fish. Unfortunately, we live in Seattle and we have a fish share. Yeah. So we have a constant supply of fish in our freezer that we're constantly trying to get ahead of before the next fish share shows up and like fills our freezer again. You know, champagne problems in a way. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I'm also very fond of tofu in many, many different forms, right? Like I love firm tofu, pan fried. I loved pressed tofu, thin sliced over ramen. I love silken tofu squeezed out through sundubu jjigae, which is like this wonderful homey Korean stew. So it's silken and custardy. Um, I love from a U.S. palate standpoint, I love taking um, slightly firmer silken tofu. Uh, that's a Japanese style tofu and just blitzing it with some cocoa powder uh, and very little sugar. And it ends up having the consistency for me of uh, chocolate pudding. Yeah. Right. Like so, and and I always grew up on these like tofu almond pudding kind of almond flavored pudding kind of things too. So I like that texture. So I hate tofu in a variety of forms already. Right. Like so, a day doesn't go by when I'm like, oh, I need to run over to H Mart and get some more tofu, and I'll stand there in front of like the tofu section, the wall tofu, going, hmm, I'm only allowed to get three kinds today. <laughs> <laughs> See, I know I, I know absolutely nothing about tofu. No experience with it whatsoever. Like I uh, uh but so next time we get a chance to hang out, you need to introduce me to good tofu. I would be happy to, although Dan lives closer to you and Dan makes use of tofu tofu quite well too. He make he and Don both, uh his wife, make a really great ma pua tofu, which is a Chinese style yeah. uh, dish. Obviously they've made it their own and they've evolved it, but isn't that the great thing about cuisine, right? So they make a fantastic ma pua tofu. Dan also makes a very, very good spicy sundubu jjigae. Uh, so a Chinese style dish, a Korean style dish, both of which incorporate two different kinds of tofu, right? Like one's a little bit firmer, comes in squares, and another one is a silken custardy kind that just kind of freeform floats around in the in the sundubu jjigae. Um, and it's lovely because it's more about the mouthfeel. Yeah. Because tofu tends to take the flavor of the dish, right? Right. My my earliest experience with any tofu at all was this place, this Chinese restaurant in my little tiny town in in uh, Ohio that I grew up in. Um, they had a, a hot and sour soup uh. that my dad loved. And I hated as a small child. But by the time I hit teens. Yeah, that's a little bit more complicated for a kid's palate, right? Yeah. When I hit my teens, I started to realize that this was really good soup. Mm -hmm. And it had these big old chunks of, I don't know what kind, but they had big old chunks of tofu that just absorbed all of that flavor. Right. And then you take the mouth and it just bursts the flavor all over your mouth. From the, the actual, oh, so dang good. I love that. Oh, oh, yeah. And there's some cooking techniques to different kinds of tofu, right? Uh, actually, it was funny. Uh, I want to say a year or two ago is uh, sometime during lockdown area time periods, you know, during the panini. Um, there was a foodie article that 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 said uncharitable things about tofu. And my corner of the social media Internet flipped out about that. Like, excuse you. And Courtney Milan, who happens to be an excellent romance writer, particularly historical romance. I love her work, by the way. Um, did an entire Twitter thread in which she did just did a month of tofu recipes. And so many of them were glorious that I was like, click, let me grab that recipe. Click, let me grab that recipe. All different kinds of tofu, exploring all different ways to cook it and how delicious it was. Uh, Courtney Milan is also one of those people who I really enjoy her palate. So if tofu is not your thing, 
currently one of the things that she has been exploring this summer has been um, tea, particularly pu'er tea, and particularly the types of of teas that you go through multiple steepings, tasting the difference each time it's been steeped for a couple of seconds and having just a tiny cup of it and tasting the different and the flavor yeah. profile as it changes through the multiple steepings. Uh, and she'll actually have gone through this little ritual or journey um, in a calming way and just tweet about it. Yeah. And I've been following those threads and she also has um, a, uh, a newsletter that talks about a, perf- a particular type of tea, then her thoughts about the internet and then, you know, the writing stuff. Um, but yeah, again, with the flavor and things like, cause I've encountered a lot of people who aren't familiar with teas and tisanes, right? Yeah. And so in particular, like I know a lot of people in the Utah area don't drink tea and coffee, but they can have tisanes, the herbal non-caffeinated teas and even though we call it teas they're not really teas right because they don't use tea leaves but right they're referred to as herbal teas right the tisanes and it has been fun to introduce those friends you know and I, I try to educate myself on the reasons why they do or do not partake um to like rooibos which is a tisane or to herbal teas like there was uh last time I was in Thailand there was a spa and they gave us a teapot and it was just pandan leaves curled into hot water and it was so pleasant and so light. Um, and it was just a tea that was just water with soaked pandan leaves in it. And pandan has just this incredible, subtle, aromatic experience. Yeah. It's not quite a flavor, but if it's missing, you can tell. It's kind of like vanilla that way. I, I love a um, like a loose leaf fruity tea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm sure there are parts of the world where this would be a great sin, but I'll make it on like a cold night. And then put just a bit of uh, cream and sugar in and it tastes like a creamsicle. I say go for it. That's fantastic. One of the things that I have two mugs of tea next to me right here because uh, my partner, Matthew, is sick and coughing somewhere else in the apartment. And I was like, I better have tea in case, you know, because we're going to be talking. Yeah. Um, And one of them is an Earl Grey Moonlight from Adagio Tea. So it's it's Earl Grey, which is a black tea, and it's got like bergamot and lavender I, leaves and stuff like that in it. I have gotten that exact tea before. Oh gosh, it smells so good. And I like to put a dollop of sweet cream in it because it becomes this like, I guess they call it a London fog in some coffee shops uh, where they take Earl Grey and then they, you know, they make it, they add cream. Yeah. Um. So I have that because I love that taste, but I also have a, a tea that's, or a tisane, an herbal that's mostly um, licorice root, which is fantastic for the throat, Ooh. as well as slippery elm, which has a very specific taste to it. And it's kind of hard to get. Yeah. Um, and then you take the edge off of that with some raspberries and um, I think some marshmallow root. And so it's a very, very drinkable to saying, but it takes like 15 minutes to steep because you got root pieces in there yeah. as opposed to just leaves or, you know, or, or blossoms. Like I've got literal chunks of bark going into this tea, <laughs> but it's worth it because the slippery elm and the licorice root being fantastic on your throat. Like I highly recommend bringing something that has that to any con. Uh, I, I do. I really do love good tea. We got one of those little, um, the the way too expensive Breville tea makers about three years ago. Mm. And the other day, a friend of mine was saying, hey, do you like that little tea maker you have? I was thinking about maybe getting it for somebody for Christmas. I was doing the math in my head and I'm like, I have used that thing over a thousand times, probably more than that. 
And dang, I love it. I love like a little teeny automated tea maker. I just, it's like the first thing I do every single morning. Like <laughs> you, you, when you grow up in like, a, like I grew up in a Mormon household. And so you don't have a lot of those kind of ritualistic things like coffee and tea and mm-hmm. your, or, or like a beer with dinner, you know, stuff like that. You, yeah. It just doesn't exist for you. And so like as an adult, uh, especially about the last five years or so, I found that I really love that kind of early morning, like just ritualistic. I'm not really awake yet, but I can get the dang tea maker going. Yeah, exactly. I find that I don't usually drink coffee in the morning. I don't intake caffeine very much at all. Uh, but so it's actually kind of funny if you get trapped in a conference with me when I have had caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> there were there were a couple times at Dragon Steel where I had a morning panel and I was like, I haven't had caffeine yet. And the crowd is like, do we want, do you, do you need it? Like the volunteers would be like, do you need the caffeine? I was like, I don't think any of you need me at a higher energy level than I'm already at at 10 a.m. <laughs> yeah. And the audience was just kind of like, well, it could be fun. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but I do love an afternoon tea. And that's another one of my pet peeves that I feel like culture changes when it travels to other places and other regions it becomes a new thing and i am being fuddy-duddy about the switchover because it's it's like the same thing like you know the story of french fries that aren't actually french fries because somebody made a mistake and called them french fries because they thought they were in the wrong place yeah right so afternoon tea and high tea are two different things historically to my understanding and i'm sure someone's gonna call me out um way way back in the day afternoon tea was the thing that was this high level in the afternoon. I want some small bites and I want um, cream tea, which is like the the scones and the and the clotted cream and the jam. And I also want some little pastries, right? Like this three tier level um, thing of the tiny finger sandwiches and then, and then the cream tea and then also the, the sweets, right? That was afternoon tea. Yeah. High tea was something that your farmers had when the sun was so high in the sky, it was too hot to be out there in the fields anyway. So you would come in and you have like, like you, you'd step to the side and you'd unpack your pail and you'd have like this hearty kind of sandwiches of like cheeses and meats and, and, and tea in a thermos or like some kind of container. Thermoses probably didn't exist, right? Somebody historical is going to get on my case. Yeah. But that was high tea. But nowadays you can't go anywhere, not New York, not any city where they don't say, come have high tea at the Four Seasons Hotel. And they're talking about the the elegant tea sandwiches and sweets right. and clotted cream because they've changed it to be that high tea is this high level luxury experience. Well, because that's what it sounds like when you say it, high tea, right? It's like, it's like a branding thing, right? It's, it's become a branding thing. And so yeah. now high tea is high tea and I can't argue it, right? Like, because that's what it's become. Um, but I love both. In yeah, fact, yeah. Piper Mommy loves both. And so I grew up from college on looking for places that served these type of tea services so that Piper Mommy and I could enjoy that as a special thing to go to together. Or yeah. I would actually, um, you know, go through the cooking and the baking and stuff to set up a high tea or an afternoon tea, whatever it was, a tea time for her and her friends. So now when she comes to visit from Thailand, there is not ever a visit where I don't make sure tea happens. But on a day-to-day basis at home, sometimes I just have these little personal teacups and it's just the putting a little bit of loose tea that I feel like for the day and steeping it and sitting down with the cup and going, huh, I like this one. Or, huh, this smells really good, but the taste is not here. Yeah. Or, you know, like, and be thoughtful for five minutes before I move on with my 
afternoon. Man, I, I struggle so much with the whole be thoughtful part. Like I'm like that, like make a giant thing of tea and then chug a huge glass of it every couple of hours. And that's cool too. Like I have a friend who does that with coffee. I kind of, I, I kind of wish I had a bit of that, like, oh, trying a couple different things and really thinking about what I'm drinking and all that. I just, my brain does not want to slow down long enough for that. I would do that with you. I think that I learned how to do that with friends. I would totally do that. Like I would do that with you. Cause then we could chat about it and be like, I can't taste it either. <laughs> <laughs> we could read the things on the package and say, oh, well, okay. Yeah, and be like, what do you think? <laughs> Here's what I'm missing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I would totally do that with you. I think that, I think that some experiences are fun to learn about with friends. And I don't necessarily have the impetus to, or motivation to do it by myself. Yeah. Well, uh, when I grew up, I grew up with with ramen being a thing you get out of a 25 cent package. Mm-hmm. And my parents still think that. You know, oh, my I, gosh. They were never 10 cents for you. We used to have 10 cent packages like the college time. Like that was what you bought when right. you were in college was like ramen and tuna and craft mac and cheese. Yeah, that's like, but that's like what, but that's what like uh, ramen was for me until about four years ago when a couple of friends like dragged me to a nice ramen place when we were at a convention and it was amazing and I loved it. Did these friends involve Dan and Ethan? (laughs) No, no, it didn't. Oh, dang it. (laughs) But like I, I ended up like, but I ended up loving ramen and I actually, I actually went and got ramen with Ethan about four days ago. Um, I'm super mad because I had the first time I met Ethan was in Arizona when I used to live in Phoenix. Yeah. And it was, I guess it was Phoenix Comic Con. And I picked up Dan and Ethan to go have ramen yeah. in, in Phoenix. And there was a decent stand up ramen place there that made their noodles fresh that day. And we took them for that. Ooh. I, I, I should tell the, the listener that Ethan, because uh, the listeners will know Dan because he's been on a couple of times. But uh, but Ethan is our mutual friend who is an academic um, that we are very fond of. Ethan Sprout is fantastic. And I actually had the pleasure of gaming with Ethan on Typecast RPG as well with you. Yeah. And that I miss that all of us gaming together. I miss that a lot. It was so much fun. I think that we're trying to organize a game night sometime the next couple of weeks. I hope that it actually happens. But like. And actually, you know, low key, not trying to present it to the world game night. Right, exactly. But who knows when, when, when that will happen. I'm a little too far away to be able to join in on that. You are too far away. That's so sad. <laughs> hey, Page Break listeners. Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer, or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. So um, before we spend the entire podcast talking about food um, and tea, <laughs> I, uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your writing career and your books. Sure, sure. So you write romance plus a whole bunch of different genres. Oh, yes. And I, I, I love that because I, I have zero experience 
with romance as a genre. And I was kind of curious if you could give me, because I I, I kind of, I'm going to assume maybe unjustly that a lot of my listeners are like me where they're romance troglodytes. And I was wondering if you could, as somebody who loves both kind of the fantasy um, genre as a whole, Mm -hmm. but also writes in romance, could you give us the elevator pitch for the romance genre? Oh my gosh. Okay. Romance. It's more like the gateway rather than the elevator pitch for romance. Cause you hear the elevator pitch for romance all the time, right? Like the central plot line is the romantic plot line. And it's about the adventure of how they get together. It's not about being surprised at the end, right? Cause you know, you, you have the peace of mind and, and the, you know that your heart is sheltered and not going to be broken at the end because they, they, they do have a happily ever after the adventure is figuring out, it out how in spite of all the things that they're being faced with right yeah so that's the elevator pitch for romance okay fine right and there's a lot of wonderful discourse about how romance has been the cutting edge of things like consent and equality and inclusivity and really really been right at the front trailblazing at at writing that and including that on the main stage but instead let me share with you how I was introduced to romance because I grew up as a science fiction fantasy reader, right? I started reading at a very, very early age. You know, at that time period, there was like this uh, program with Pizza Hut where if you read five books, you got a star. And if you had a pin with five stars, you got a free pan pizza. And my parents weren't really like we were we were financially fine, but we didn't have the wherewithal to splurge on eating out. Yeah. Right. So Friday night pan pizza became my thing. I read 25 books a week, usually more, but you can only earn five stars. And so I always got a pan pizza and my sister and I shared it. And my parents would, you know, take us to Pizza Hut because I had earned a pan pizza. And so this became the weekly thing. So all of it was science fiction and fantasy, right? Third grade, my teachers were testing me to see if I really had read Terry Brooks's Elf Sons of Shannara. And boy, did I have opinions about the ending to that. I had opinions in third grade about this situation, you know, and then I was also reading a lot of Michael Crichton. I was reading a lot of Jane Ale, you know, all through elementary school. And then Mercedes Lackey and Anne McCaffrey came onto the scene and I was reading a lot of them. Um, I was reading a lot of uh, Robert Heinlein, uh, particularly Glory Road. I used to come back to quite often. I kind of bounced off of David Weber. Please don't hate me for it. It just, it so happened that at that time I bounced off of it. Well, you, you know, you I also in elementary school. Like, I, I was still on boxcar children. I mean, well, middle school by the time David Weber was like brought up to me, it was like okay. middle school, high school, you know, and yeah, yeah. I really, really loved Anne McCaffrey's Sassanac. And so David Weber's, um, oh gosh, what's her name? David Weber had a primary heroine character who was military sci-fi. And I, I, I bounced off of her because I loved Sassanac so much was what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in any case, so science fiction and fantasy was my thing, right? So wait until my adulthood. We're talking like heavy into my adulthood here. Like I was married. <laughs> I had finished high school. I had finished undergrad. I had finished my master's degrees. Um, I was had a full-time job. I was at SakuraCon in Seattle with a bunch of friends laughing about how we're back to like the, the, the just after college days. Cause we're all sharing a hotel room together. You know, three of us, not 10 packed into a hotel room, just three. Right. 
And I might have stayed up a little too late in the viewing rooms at SakuraCon. And my friend had left a book on the bed because I decided to sleep in. And so I start reading the book. And it's this gorgeous, sweeping, epic fantasy. Like this is a chonky, chonky book with some heavy duty world building, multiple races involved, right? Like we had elves, but we also had fae. And that was interesting to me from a fantasy choice because a lot of fantasies that I'd been reading at the time only had either elves or fae. They didn't generally have both as two different distinct races. Uh, And then you had um, humans and you had this race of people who were Terran souls. So basically their souls were linked at birth with the soul of a type of mystical creature, which was basically a predatorial big cat with wings that could breathe fire. Right. And I'm here for it. Right. And you have this hero main character. He's lived for centuries. He lost his love on the battlefield. He saw her die and was so heartbroken. He scorched the world centuries later they have poetry about him and suddenly a human girl is accidentally harmed in an attack and her soul calls out to him and they're soul bound and i'm like this fantasy ah so i'm reading i'm reading i'm reading i'm reading and then i'm like helen who is my friend at the time i'm like we need to go get this book because i'm going to steal it from you otherwise and i need to get the rest in the series right now and she's like okay and there you know there's barnes and noble two blocks down from the convention center or there was it's closed now much sad and I started heading straight to the science fiction fantasy as you know how to do in any like bookstore, right? Like, you know how to gravitate to your genre area. You know how to look for it. And she's like, oh yeah, it might be here, but it might also be over here. And we looked, it wasn't in science fiction fantasy. It was shelved in romance because it was C.L. Wilson's Lord of the Fading Lands. And I was like, gimme. Like, I didn't care. (laughs) Like, I'd never read any other romance before, but I didn't care because this story was so good. Yeah. So what I would recommend to anyone who who is unfamiliar with romance is find a gateway romance. Yeah. Don't ask a friend who reads romance, who doesn't read what you read because they will give you a romance and you're going to bounce off of it because it's the romance that they read. It's kind of like trying out food. Ask for romance from somebody who reads what you read and loves what you love too, because they'll know what romance gateway is one that will appeal to you because romance is such a broad genre. It's kind of like trying to jump in the deep end of watching anime for the first time. Yeah. Right. Japanese anime is a huge, huge, huge visual genre. And it's got so many different things. Like I can tell you right now, I have a lot of friends who watch anime and their choices are way different from mine. Right. Like I only watch a very, very few slice of life animes and then the rest of them bore me to tears. Right. I only watch a few magical girl animes and then the rest of them are a little bit too not quite right. They're not the right fit for me. But give me like a problematic morality chain hero. And I'm just like, like, ah, right. Like, so there's a lot of anime that I really enjoy that some people are like, that's disturbing. (laughs) It's, it's really interesting because like when you talk about um, books and anime or, uh, you know, TV or whatever it is. It's like flavor profiles, mm-hmm. you know, different people like the different flavor profiles and sometimes yes. they cross over and sometimes they don't. And, you know, it's all different. It's all different for each individual. Exactly. Now, one of the things that I love about romance and romance landia, as we like to call it on the internet, <laughs> um, is that a lot of romance authors have really tagged into this palette thing. And so we start to give you um, 
we start to give you little hints about what we like. So rather than me telling you that, let's say like my Triton experiment series, I was doing this at Dragonsteel Con and it really seemed to work well with the readers who are coming up and just like, I would like to know more about your book. And I would go to the London Shifter series and say, rather than saying this is paranormal romance and the story is about this, 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 I would be like werewolves protecting humans at ground zero of the zombie apocalypse. Large body count. I promise you the cat lives, right? Like, does that tell you what the plot is? No. But does that tell you the ingredients where you're like, I think I might like this. Let me pick this up. Yes, it does. Or I'll tell you, I was telling them about my Triton experiment series. And I was like, we have a shapeshifter in space. She's very good at killing people. She's very bad at feelings. Again, nothing about the storyline. Yeah. But we know that this has the ingredients that we like. <laughs> so we must read it now. Right. Um, so I think that a lot of romance authors have started to use graphics and stuff like that, where they have the book and they don't have the blurb. What they have is like grumpy versus sunshine. He's bad at feelings. She wants to murder a person. Kidnapping is their love language, right? Like they'll say something like that. And people are like, oh, I'm in, I want to read this story. And romance readers in particular respond really well to that because they're like, I think that depending on the genre you're in, the context of how we discuss tropes changes. Some people mistake tropes for being a bad thing that's overdone. Like, oh my gosh, red meat's bad for you, right? Um, whereas, particularly in romance, we embrace it. We say you love tropes or you have a hard line and you will not read a secret baby daddy. Okay, well, I'm letting you know that this has a secret baby daddy in it so you don't pick this up and end up being like, oh gosh, I hated it, right? Like, and bounce off of it. Yeah. Um, romance really leans into letting you know what tropes are in this book so that you know if this is something you love or this is something you're going to put down, like reading the back, the ingredients on the back of a food label. I, I actually really like that. I, I like that kind of technique in terms of kind of interacting with your readership because yeah, you and I both know that you know, pitching novels to random people at conventions. That's hard. It's, it's hard. It's, it's, it can be fraught because the pitch that you just gave the last five people might like, you know, actively offend the sixth person, right? Like, you ne- exactly. You never know how it's going to work. And also like, it's so fraught when you're faced with the question of what's your book about yeah. or tell me what your book is about, right? Because you you start with the elevator pitch, right? Like how much time it takes you do you have in an elevator? And then you're like, well, do I have time to get into the query pitch, which is like how long it, does it take to be in an email without having to scroll, right? Like about that much information is what I'm going to give you. But then people are like, I want a full on synopsis. Tell me more. Tell, tell me more detail. And that can get also fraught because you're waiting you're watching the person to see when their eyes glaze over right like they're done listening now yeah well and, and that's super hard and and the, the 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 bigger and more complicated books that you write it's like what do when you they ask you for a synopsis you're like what details do i share like exactly like oh my gosh so many can you do a synopsis all right i'll challenge you if you want me to do a synopsis of my series like it's worse when it's a series right like uh, of my novel yeah all right if you want me to do a synopsis of my novel i dare you to summarize the fellowship of the ring in three sentences and and not use the name of the like don't lean on the reputation preceding it yeah right like that's hard like pitch madness on twitter where you have to limit it you're gonna have to give me a half hour to think about that like yeah you're gonna have to sculpt that and pull out like the special special bit yeah. sculpting a pitch for twitter for example for p- pitch madness is hard work because it's that limited number of characters but you're pitching but also you're hashtagging right like so how much room do you have 
to tell about this story. And what you have to go for is what is the point that will catch this person's interest and hook this person? Yeah. And you kind of have to try to get a sense for that. And that's that's hard. That, that's definitely hard. Like uh, I, I had an experience at Dragonsteel Con where I gave my pitch to someone and their eyes kind of glazed over and they're like, oh, I'm not that interested. And they started to walk away. And then two people that one person, a guy came up with his buddy, like right behind the person walking away. And the guy was clearly already a fan of mine. And he was like, oh, these books are great. And he turned and told his buddy his pitch of what the books were about, which was nothing like my pitch. And the person walking away stopped, came back and bought a book. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, you don't know what's going to grab a person. Exactly. And and one of the funny things about it, too, is that it's real hard to bounce off an entire genre based on like a handful of books. Yeah. Right. Like I would not bounce off the entire fantasy genre just because I had tried three authors and they, I bounced off of all of them. Right. And I think that that's one of the difficulties when you talk about any genre and someone having tried it and, and then bouncing off. It, it just means that they hadn't found the subgenre within that genre that appeals to them. Or they, they hit an author who writes that subgenre in a way that doesn't appeal to them. Yeah. Right? Voice is a is a part of it. Like you could love Ma Pua Tofu and then the way that someone else cooks it could be terrible in terms of a match to your palate, right? Yeah. Like, you know, you could end up not feeling your mouth because there was so much Szechuan pepper in there. And then another times, you know, you could absolutely have loved it because your entire mouth has gone numb, but there's this savory sensation going on that you're in you're 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 enjoying for the rest of your life. Right. So, yeah, like, I think that it has a lot to do with convincing people to be open to keep trying rather than say, I tried that once and never trying it again. I'm like, okay, fine. Well, you know what? You tried hot and sour soup once and thought you didn't like it. But guess what? Maybe you do now. Yeah. Well, and that's something I'm discovering as I get older is that my palate's changing a lot. Oh, yeah. The last few years, I have genuinely started enjoying foods that I loathed in my 20s i just like i'm i'm finding just oh yeah man i love this stuff this is so tasty like you know, put put more hot sauce on that you know on that taco i just got the street tacos that i got you know like in my 20s i genuinely would not order a, a taco like i just, oh yeah i thought anything anything if somebody said oh let's get mexican my brain immediately went you know bland beans all mixed up and you know kind of cheap hamburger I, unfortunately kind of what my mom did when i was <laughs> when when we were having you know kind of mexican night at home was kind of all the cheapest ingredients the gringo taco sit up <laughs> right that i didn't like and it turns out, oh, you can make it different. And people are really good at making these things to taste incredible. Oh, yeah. And I think that it was kind of funny because, again, similar to you age range wise, like right after I got out of college, you know, my friends and I would go to these fantastic Korean barbecue places, but they would always dump like this huge plate of kimchi onto the grill as well as all the meats. Right. And I, I truly avoided kimchi, truly avoided it over and over again. For years, but I have to admit in the last, say, 10 years since I like since I turned the corner in my late 30s into like my late 40s, because I am older than Dan, that that's the fun thing that I like to remind people because we just we're talking about how Dan might come across as a little bit um, a little bit old manish when it comes to embracing technology. Yeah. Uh, but I am older than him. <laughs> 
and it was like in the last 10 years or so, I have really developed not only an enjoyment of kimchi, a craving for it. Like I will get back from a trip and, you know, you're a little dehydrated after you've been on planes and stuff and then cons and everything because you're not really paying attention to proper hydration and stuff. And I'll crave kimchi. Like I will crave kimchi jeon, kimchi jeon, which is like the kimchi pancakes that Dan also makes really, really tasty and amazingly bad for you. And I've watched him flip a huge giant one in a pan successfully. Then when he tried to flip it again, it like flipped out of the pan and halfway onto the floor. It was great. <laughs> um, and then like, and like sundubu jjigae with, with kimchi in it, or like I was never in college, that person that would do ramen and throw kimchi into it. But now I'm just like, yeah, I need a vegetable. I'm like throwing a pile of kimchi into my ramen. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, my palate's been changing too. I, I would say I really crave fermented foods a lot more than I did back in my 20s. It, yeah, you just change as you get older. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I was actually curious. It's a terrible segue, but speaking of change, um, I was curious about your early pseudonym, the PJ Schneider. Yes. So I, I saw on your website that, that you are re-releasing everything under Piper Drake. Mm-hmm. So, so why the pseudonym and then why the ditching the pseudonym? Okay. So I'm going to re- answer this in reverse order. Part of it's Brandon Sanderson's fault. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm going to leave that and I'm going to go back to the beginning and answer the question. And then you'll see why. Okay. Um, I just got to call him out for this one and I don't think he'd mind. Uh, but in any case, so when I first started pursuing publishing, it became very, very clear that my real name, I was, I was managing and I'm still managing a parallel day job career, mm-hmm. right? And it gets a little judgmental if you're in that career, but you're also an author because the question becomes like, Hey, are you really spending the time that you say that you're spending on your day job? Or are you putzing around writing on company hours? Yeah. Right. So I made the choice to go with a pen name and I wanted something that I would answer to. Right. So I'm one of the old fogies from the mega Tokyo forums. uh, And I used to attend Otakon a lot. And so uh, a lot of the personalities on the mega Tokyo forums would call me PJ as a shortening for my handle on the mega Tokyo forums at the time. So every year I would go to Otakon and every year they'd be like, oh, that's PJ. So I became PJ Schneider as my pen name because it was a lot easier to say. It was a lot easier to look up. There wasn't somebody who already owned the domain 
uh, a lot of those kinds of things. And I wrote paranormal romance and science fiction romance. And I started off well, but I started off in digital first publishing with Harlequin, uh, Harlequin's digital imprint called Karina Press, as well as a couple of small presses. And I did pretty okay. But once I went on, I settled with the agent that I have now, because I've had more than one agent. Um, she really was saying that she was getting feedback from my editors that I wasn't really getting the attention or the exposure that I deserved. And they were all wondering if I would be willing to change genres to romantic suspense. And because I was changing genres so drastically, they recommended a change in pen name. And I had thought about it pretty hard and was like, okay, I am willing to change my pen name. And so I wrote uh, two pitches for series. So these series got acquired on proposal um, and they were each a three book deal. So within the space of six months, my agent had landed me two three book deals. That's huge. With Trad Publishing. And both editors were willing to work together and with me to decide what the heck the pen name was going to be. So I pitched a couple of Thai names and everybody's like, can we make them simpler? Can we make them easier to say? Can we make them easier to pronounce? And and I was like, okay, let's give up on the Thai names for now because that was the time period. Wasn't, yeah. uh, you know, no shade thrown at the editors at the time. The discourse was not there, right? Like this was years and years ago and the discourse just wasn't there. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to try to make sure that my readers who are used to calling me PJ and love seeing me at con and calling out to me like, Hey, PJ, PJ, PJ could still have that. And so my mom, Piper mommy was like, well, if we got to go white bread with the name, which I'm, I'm not going to lie, that's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, she was like, I've always liked Piper because my mom was a big fan of the charmed TV show. Yeah. And she's like, I've always liked Piper. And I was like, huh, Piper. And I asked a couple of my readers and I asked a couple of my book blogger friends and they're like, you're an awesome Piper. You'd make a great Piper. So then I talked with my partner, Matthew, and we decided to become the Drakes. So insider tip, Piper J. Drake and Matthew J. Drake are not married. They're a pen name that we chose together because Matthew was starting in writing at the time. I did not know that. That's really interesting. I mean, obviously we're committed couple because we've been together for over 10 years but that whole yeah. marriage thing i mean i have a ring on my finger we promised his mom we'd get married eventually but neither of us is really worried about it <laughs> right <laughs> like ah. i mean for my part i've been there done that that's kind of an unfair thing to say like i i respect his mother and i do want to give her a wedding someday it just you know like it, eh. <laughs> we'll get there we'll get there um but yeah matthew j drake and piper j drake were because we decided together what our pen name personas were going to be. Right. Now, Matthew's military, so his presence on social media um, is probably best not to be accurate anyway. Yeah. There are quite a lot of military people who um, have a typo in their social media presence for exactly that reason. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Matthew J. Drake and Piper J. Drake. And a lot of people will be like, what does the J stand for? And I'm like, well, you know what? You're just going to have to wait until I do something on the internet and my agent yells at me on the internet for it because that's when she pulls out what she's decided is my middle name. <laughs> I I absolutely love that you both have the J. It just cracks me up. Like mm -hmm. But it's uh, it's a part of who we are, right? Like we're the Drakes, fun. but we are both have the J and it's yeah. a key part of our thing. Now, why am I pulling my re-releases back under the Piper J Drake name and why is it Brandon's fault? Well, way back when you and I met, when we got together at Brandon's place, uh, for writing excuses recording. Remember? Yeah, long time ago. I was talking about pen names and this changeover from PJ to Piper. And 
Brandon was like, I don't know why that's a strategy that authors take. Like, you know, he understood that that is a difference in strategy and approach, right? He just wouldn't do it himself. And I think that's the right choice for him, obviously, over the years. And he very much introduced me to the idea. And I let it simmer for years was this concept of, you know, book to book to book to book, right? But you have an author brand. And at the time, I was being guided in such a way that I was trying to establish a platform somewhere. And I was still kind of like looking for what was going to stick. And so I decided not to be attached to my author identity until something stuck. And I established myself because I wanted to be agile and ready to pivot from series to series until I established a platform that stuck. Like I didn't want to be too married and holding on too tightly to things that only had tiny wins and successes and hold myself back from growing. But now that Piper J. Drake has stuck and I have an author brand and author identity that is recognizable across multiple subgenres, I decided that I would bring all of my titles back under a single pen name, which is why I'm re-releasing the London Shifters and the Triton Experiment series under Piper J. Drake. Yeah. Uh, Because they're still me. It's definitely been interesting with the revisioning of those series to see and to experience how I've evolved as a writer and also how the discourse has evolved in such ways that I, I know how to do better with my representation now. And it was really important to me to do better, particularly with the Triton experiment. Um, and so there were some massive revisions that happened to, uh, to st- just to have representation better. So the, the revisions weren't to plot. It wasn't to character arcs. It's just representation. Uh, no, that's that's really interesting. I I know that Brandon has because I I took one of his very first classes at BYU before right before Elantris came out. So before he was even a published author. And I know that v- from his very early, like when he was still a grad student, he didn't like the idea of pseudonym jumping. Mm-hmm. Um, because that was that was one of the little pieces of advice we got, you know, as little baby students was you, you know maybe just work under your own name you you can pseudonym jump that's a thing that editors or agents might encourage you to at different points but um you know at the time the internet was starting to be talked about more as a part of you know kind of your writing career and things like that and so yeah you know like a like consistent brand was definitely something he talked about early on and honestly my own career kind of ended up i mean i haven't written a lot of other things you know i've got my little urban fantasy series but i've always kind of had that your little it's a fantastic series don't even (laughs) thanks no but i've always had that kind of thought of like of of keep it as brian mcclellan as is an author and he writes other things occasionally you know a better example is actually dan wells who who he honestly maybe has been in situations where he should have pseudonym jumped (laughs) but he never did and he's done so many different genres as an author it is an interesting question and i don't think that there's a right way i do think it's really fun to see how it has turned out for different people using different making different choices as they've been presented with different situations i will say very honestly that my real name which i don't mind revealing my real name is lalana dararat no way were readers going to ever remember how to google that no way were they ever going to remember how to get to that website no way were they ever going to remember to walk into a bookstore and be able to ask for that author name Right. So we can learn how to spell Daenerys Targaryen, but we have a bit of a struggle with other names that are unfamiliar to us. Right. 
especially if we're trying to remember a book, right? And oftentimes we're like, I know it has a green cover, right? Like we don't even remember the title of the book sometimes, especially when you have a book that's a noun of noun and noun, yeah. which is definitely the title structure of my upcoming book in April. <laughs> it's a noun of, of descriptor plus descriptor, right? Like, like that's a thing. And, and so you get a little confused with the book titles too, so I opted at the time that I was publishing to follow the strategy of picking a name that was easier for my readers to kind of grab onto and easy to Google yeah. right away. Right. Right. Like most people can spell Piper. It, it just makes it, it makes it accessible. I mean, especially for an American audience that tends to be quite lazy with those things. And it's a decision. Do you want to make yourself accessible to the mainstream or do you want to teach people and be a lesson? Yeah. And I've made my choices a little bit of this and a little bit of that as we go. But when it came to the pen name, I made my pen name choosing to be more accessible to a mainstream audience. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's very understandable. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and I, do I believe that authors should be able to use their real name and that audience should do the work and be willing to do the work of accustomizing themselves to a name that might not be familiar to them? Yes. Yes, I do. Which is why a lot of my characters have names that are unfamiliar to people potentially. You know, I just... I didn't choose to do it six years ago, 10 years ago with my pen name. And so now that the discourse and the education and the awareness is better, I do it with my characters. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that that's, I mean, that's just part of kind of developing as an author, right? You, yeah. You learn more, the world around you changes, you change, you try to, you try to adapt, you try to, you know, just move forward, right? But also there's a certain amount of having begun to have people journey with you, right? As you build a reader base who's a little bit more loyal or or at least recognizes you and has some respect for you or has some trust with you, they're more willing to do the work of learning a new world if you're building a new world or learning new characters if you're introducing new characters than they would be if they don't know you from anybody else, right? Like So a part of it is the fact that I've advanced enough in my career as a trailblazer in certain ways Uh, both because of an intersection of marginalized identities and also because of just the fact that I have my voice and I have the stories that I tell. And I've advanced enough in my career that I have readers who are like, I like the stories that she tells and I want to learn more. And so I'm more open to these new flavors she's introducing me to. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And I think that that's important with readership too. It's like uh, people will be, they know that they should be more inclusive. They know they ought to be more diverse. They know that, but also they want to like what they want to like. So that's another thing about like, I'm always talking about being a gateway author, writing gateway books. It's like, I want to be able to write books that you know you're going to enjoy because it's still the fantasy that you love and has these fantasy elements that you enjoy. But also, let me give you these other things for you to experience next to it and we'll do a little of it you know fusion cooking well yeah and i like to talk about like even just for i like to talk about uh when you're writing an epic fantasy novel especially right at the beginning that the way you draw a reader in is giving them the proper amounts of the familiar versus the unfamiliar yes and and you kind of have to do that not just in the narrative but just kind of as an author Right. Like, yeah, that's how you kind of that's how you coax the people into becoming a fan and 
following your career and and moving forward with you. Yep, exactly. And and each of those things, each of my series, you know, I'm like, I'm better known for romantic suspense now, right? Because what we were talking about, Piper J. Drake established as a romantic suspense author. Like I was known for heroes and heroines with really strong moral compasses. I was really known for these working dogs who are great personalities, you know, and, and quite heroic. Um, and how does that translate to me putting out a series in April that is fantasy, that is contemporary fantasy, right? And a lot of people are like, oh, well, it's urban fantasy, but nobody wants to say the word urban fantasy anymore. So now we get into this thing where genres, like publishers don't want to say a genre because it doesn't sell anymore. But readers are like, but isn't that what this is? Yeah. Right. And I'm like, I want to take you back to the days of Laurel K. Hamilton when she first started publishing the Anita Blake series. And half the time her stuff was in was like she'd have books in multiple places. Right. Like sometimes her books would be shelved in horror because of the level of body count and blood and gore that would happen in them. Sometimes they were in romance because like she got explicit. There were some major complex romantic relationships going on in there and all of them got super physical, right? And sometimes they were in science fiction and fantasy because we had vampires and werewolves and more vampires and werewolves. And there was even a Quetzalcoatl in one of the books, right? So like, where did she belong? Well, eventually, urban fantasy became a thing. And Patricia Briggs came on the scene with the Mercedes Thompson series. And I had been reading her in fantasy, right? And she came along with her Mercedes Thompson series. And she came along with the Alpha and Omega series. And Alpha and Omega series, I would argue, is actually romance. But because Patty is an urban fantasy author who went blockbuster big with Mercedes Thompson, it's being marketed as urban fantasy, even though Alpha and Omega is really a romance between Charles and Anna. You know, you look at Sarah J. Mass and her Throne of Glass series was YA, but A Court of Throne and Roses is not YA. Absolutely not. But she's marketed as a YA author, right? You look at Katie Robert, who has hit New York Times and USA Today multiple times for her Dark Olympus series in the last two years, right? She's a romance author. Not only is she a romance author, she's a hybrid like me. She's indie and she's trad. And, and she's a lot of things. But her Dark Olympus series is definitely romance. What are people calling it? Dark fantasy. Why? Because there's dark elements. She's created a city that is a fictional city, kind of like Gotham is a fictional city. Um, and Metropolis is a fictional city. And she's created these characters and these relationships and these worlds. And because it doesn't have werewolves and vampires, because the magic is very low key, they call it dark fantasy instead. And she's extremely bonkers explicit. And the fact that people are like, don't call it a romance. That's right <laughs> up there with, you know, a person who came to me. All right, I'll, I'll confess, like uh, Matthew's mother, when she first met me and she was meeting the girlfriend for the first time, said, oh, I hear you write books. I don't really write, read romance. I'm like, that's totally okay. And she's like, but I would love to talk about other things that you read because I hear you read a lot of other stuff. And she's like, who's your favorite author? And I was telling her my favorite authors, right? Who at the time were Patty Briggs and Ann Bishop as well as several romance authors like Lisa Claypass and, and Courtney Milan. <laughs> and, um, and she goes, oh, my favorite author is Nora Roberts. And I was like, but you don't read romance. And she's like, yeah. <laughs> Nora Roberts is the queen of romance, friends. Like she is the reigning queen. Lady Nora Roberts and Beverly Jenkins would be the first two people that I would recommend to you when it comes to long-running 
prolific authors of romance who really know how to spin a romance time after time, year after year, decade after decade. These are two romance authors, Beverly Jenkins and Nora Roberts, who have been writing for decades. They might not be to your taste, though, because they've been writing for decades. And you may bounce off of that, that voice, that flavor, that storytelling, right? Like you might want a more recent, more um, author who's hit the scene in the last five years or the last 10 years, right? Like, who knows? But for somebody who's like, I don't read romance, but my favorite author is Nora Roberts. I'm like, mm. well, and that's me thinks it doesn't matter what the genre label is. You love the story. <laughs> right. Well, and, and sometimes genre labels can drive people away just as much as they can attract people. Mm-hmm. And that's that. I mean, I feel like we're, we, we we're already going a little bit long, but I feel like that's like a whole nother conversation we could have. <laughs> We could totally. Is, I would be very happy to come back and chat with you more about other things. <laughs> no, but I, it's really interesting. Like all the way that the, the way that all this kind of spins together with marketing and, and the way the world has changed and the internet and all that stuff. It's mm-hmm. so incredibly complex. Um, and, uh, and I find it interesting in part because you can't really deal with how complex it is just like on Twitter um right it's i mean there's so much going on there people ask me to tell them about wings once cursed and bound right which is my next book that's coming out it's completely different from my romantic suspense because it's the here and the now this present day it's set in the seattle area right so you're like okay i could walk down the street and i could find some of these places that piper mentions the theater that piper starts the story in i could find it i could probably find the alley where that those two vampires have a fight but supernatural elements in the fact that we have vampires, we have werewolves, we have witches, we have fae. We have a heroine who is a throwback to a Thai bird princess. We have objects of myth and magic that come from Japan, from Korea, from Egypt, from Africa, from around the world, right? So would we call this an urban fantasy? Maybe, but also maybe not because the fantasy scenes that I write are very, very magical, fantastical. And so they have more of a flavor of fantasy than, say, a Jim Butcher dressed in files kind of urban fantasy or a Patricia Briggs, Mercedes Thompson kind of urban fantasy, right? Like, so is it urban fantasy? I don't know how the readers would classify it. I know that the publisher was trying to go for contemporary fantasy or romantic fantasy, right? Like they were big on keeping the word fantasy, but they were hesitant to focus on the urban part because the urban part is literally only the first opening scene or two. Yeah. And everything else is like really focused on it. And when my editor was asking me like where I was taking this, she was like, you know, are you taking this super, super fantastical, like post-apocalyptic? I'm like, not post-apocalyptic. And she's like, okay, um, are we, and then, cause she's a gamer like I am. She's like, are we feeling more Shadowrun vibes? Or are we feeling more World of Darkness vibes? I'm like, World of Darkness, but not Vampire the Masquerade. It's more like Changeling, the dreaming. And she's like, oh, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> it's really great when your editor knows the references that you throw out there. <laughs> and if you know, you know. That's funny because my editor just goes, sighs and says, Brian, you're such a geek. I mean, also, yes. So, I mean. But that's why we love talking to each other. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, okay. So we're going to, we, we're, I've, I've kept you a little, a little long already. So we're going to try to wrap this up, but I like to always end every episode. Okay. But, and this is going to bring it around to the very beginning. What's the last thing that you ate? that blew your mind blew my mind yes oh my gosh i don't know like i regularly eat stuff that okay so there is a bakery that i have been following 
that started in pop-up shops okay. and then she kickstarted real quick is this the donuts you posted last week yes it's the donuts because that was my follow-up question <laughs> with the donuts oh go on okay so there's this bakery she started it's as a small pop-up in other stores and whatnot she kickstarted it everything she finally gets enough funding to open her own place and then the pandemic hit (laughs) and somehow she was savvy enough and she was smart enough and she worked hard enough that she survived her business survived the pandemic at every couple of weeks, the menu changes. So there's four donuts on the menu. And every couple of weeks, it's a different menu set. And they're always these amazing combinations. So the donuts that I just, and I finally, having followed them for years, got to this place called the Flower Box in the Seattle area. Okay, just putting a pin on that. And the flavors were creme brulee in which the creme brulee was a creme pat vanilla bean cream, okay, in a brioche donut. And then they hand torched the caramelized sugar on the top of this donut. Oh my gosh. So it was actually like a crisp break through the top, bite into this ever pillowy, soft, airy brioche donut into this glorious vanilla bean creme pat. Now, if you're not familiar with why I'm making the the distinction about creme pat is if you go to Krispy Kreme or you go to Dunkin' Donuts, you usually have a choice of like frosting or vanilla pudding, right? Like it's a Bavarian cream vanilla pudding kind of situation. Creme pat is different. Creme pat is richer. It's thicker. It's custardier. And it has a little bit more body to the mouthfeel, right? Like, so it is richness, right? And then the other flavors were sticky toffee pudding. Another one was um, cookies and cream mocha. And another one was peppermint mocha or peppermint chocolate. Every one of these was similarly a kind of gourmet blend of flavors that you wouldn't experience. And they're all in brioche donuts. The other thing that really levels up this place is they're so consistently perfect about the donut quality and the flavor quality in small batches. And they're all locally sourced ingredients, right? So the flower box in the Seattle area is amazing. It's person of color owned. It's POC owned, survived, like established in the pandemic, survived in this pandemic. And I tell you right now, it opens at 10 a.m. We got there at 830 in the morning, got in line. By the time it opened at 10 a.m., there was a line down the parking lot, around the corner, up the block. And they basically just stay open until they sell out. And they usually sell out by noon. Oh, my gosh. They're that good. And it was hysterical because... I still have not been there for the flavor that caught my attention in the first place. Apparently, sometimes she explores fusion flavors, right? Like, so she had a pandan flavored donut experience. She had a durian flavored donut experience. She had, like, there are some weeks where she has an everything bagel donut, right? Like, so there's flavors and types every couple of weeks for everybody. And you just check her Instagram to find out what the menu is for the week. And then show up at 8.30, friends, because showing up at 10, you're going to be in line for two hours and you will be lucky with whatever you get because they're closing probably around noon or one o'clock. They do have a barista there and the barista is great. So the coffee is nice and bitter as a, a nice counterpoint to the donut unless you ask for a sweet mix. And then the barista is really good at making like the barista does a barista's choice every day. And the day that we were there, he did a cafe mocha with a shot of vanilla with foamed cream and art latte art on the top. And it was a delightful drink all by itself. It was a little too sweet against my creme brulee donut, but stand up by itself. It was a great drink. So the barista is great. 
as well as these donuts being great. Yeah. So that's the most recent food that has blown my mind. And I do a lot of foodie experience. It, it looked so good. It well, When I saw the picture of that. You mean me stuffing my mouth with a bread cranberry day of donut? Like, mom! <laughs> when I saw that picture on your Twitter, I, I it, made, it made me think of punchkis. Um, which it's so good <laughs> which i grew up eating in ohio because we have a huge punchkeys. polish population um so punchkis i think i'm not familiar with punchkeys. are like they're kind of like a good friday tradition i think um where they they're just these kind of big overstuffed donuts that are just uh, they're just so dang good and like uh. all bakeries around cleveland will do them for like I don't know, three weeks or something like that every year. Oh my gosh. And I just, I always loved those. And so, and the, the donuts that you posted, they looked exactly like the punchkis I grew up eating. And so I was, Oh yeah. Like I will say that there's only one other place that I will go out of my way to make sure that I go for a donut. And that is, that is an Oahu Hawaii and it's Leonard's bakery for the Malasadas because yes, the Malasadas are worth it from Leonard's in Oahu and they survived the pandemic. I checked <laughs> like, you have to check up on this. Like thing. it matters to me. Like I have I'm not sure if it's smart to say. Like I do have a list with my reviews and places I want to go and stuff like that on my Google for Piper J Drake. Oh. So it's possible to follow me to find like restaurants that I'm planning to go to before a convention. Yeah. Like I'll have a list. I I have a list of places I want to try. And you can tell that I'm preparing to go to a place for a convention because I'll have marked a bunch of places in that area <laughs> and everybody and in every place but Salt Lake City because Dan usually takes over where we're going and what we're eating or we're in his kitchen having like dueling chef combat yeah. for a week where he's like, you know, I'm going to cook mapa tofu and I'm like, fine, I'll cook okonomiyaki. And then he's like, fine, I'll cook sundubu jikei. And then I'm like, fine, I'll make Thai curry. And then he's like, we just go back and forth all week. And then we spend like the next couple weeks after that trying to recover back to a normal type of por- food portion situation. <laughs> right. We ate way too much right before Dragonsteel. Oh. We, we we gorged ourselves until we were all like, just kind of like almost gaming at the dining room table. Yeah. Like if we could fit on the dining room chairs. <laughs> but like kind of asleep during it. <laughs> I mean, 10 Candles. We definitely played at night in the dark and it was a little rough yeah. because it was a great game. It was very, very interesting but we just the next morning we were all like what did we do (laughs) Uh, i love it i love it yes that was romance author piper j drake thanks again to piper for coming on to chat you can find piper's social media and website down in the show notes you can find me as always at brianmcclellan.com special thanks to james sutter for music and tom bishop for production if you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you're listening to this via Patreon, please stick around for bonus chat during the epilogue. Special thanks to Elijah, Ivor Gullickson, James Clark, Jennifer Johnson, Jason Nall, Kyle Anderson, Sexton Hardcastle, Talon, Brian, Will Lebelski, and Bradley Thornhill for their backing on Patreon. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, Fresh. 